Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. In this podcast, we explore the weekly Torah portion in about 7 to 10 minutes. We make modern meaning out of ancient texts, exploring them through liberal Jewish eyes. To become a supporter of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash 7-Minute Torah. All right, welcome everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Before we jump in, let me first say thank you to our newest weekly supporter of 7-Minute Torah, and that's Lauren Davis. Thank you to Lauren, and thank you to all those who support this podcast. If you'd like to become a supporter of 7-Minute Torah, you can go to patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash 7-Minute Torah. You can give as little as a dollar or two an episode, but it really adds up. And I'm grateful to all those who choose to support this work. One other announcement, which is that, as many of you know, I am launching two new classes in the next couple of weeks. Starting on Tuesday, March 14th, a four-week series on radical Jewish views of God. And starting the following Monday, March 20th, a six-week series, which is a study group on Pirkei Avot, the Talmud's Tractate of Ethical Rabbinic Teachings. If you're interested in either of those, you can go to laasok.org, L-A-A-S-O-K dot org. takes place entirely on Zoom, live discussion, interactive conversation about Jewish texts in an egalitarian and inclusive environment. Now, let's talk about Kitisa. So much happens in this Torah portion. What it's really known for is the incident of the golden calf, But the wider context here is that the Israelites are still at Sinai, and over the course of the last three to five parshiot, we've received the Ten Commandments and a whole series of other commandments. We've received the instructions for how to build the Mishkan, the uh, tabernacle or sanctuary in the desert, Uh, the instructions for how to create the clothing of the priests, the priests being, of course, the one who will perform sacrifices in that sanctuary. This week, the architect of the Mishkan is appointed. His name is Betzalel, to build the Mishkan that's been described over the last couple of parashiot. Then the people rebel. The golden calf incident is considered to be the great sin, the great wrong of the Israelites. They just experienced God. They just walked through the Red Sea. They just stood at Sinai and heard God talk to them, received all these commandments, and then out of fear, out of doubt, for whatever reason, they build a golden calf and they worship it. And if you want to hear more than that, I would invite you to go back and listen to my podcast from 2021, in which I talked about the role of fear in the people's building of the golden calf, in their at least temporary rejection of God in favor of creating a God that they could see and worship right in front of them. But what interested me most this year as I was reading through the Parsha is what happens right after the golden calf incident. So we're in a moment of broken trust here. The people have worshipped a false god. They've created an idol and rejected God. Moses comes down off the mountain and smashes the Ten Commandments and gets angry and punishes the people. God wants to destroy the people, and Moses kind of talks God down from wanting to destroy them. 
And God says, okay, you can go on, but I'm not going with you. I'll send an angel in your midst, but I'm not going to be in your midst anymore. God is angry. God is hurt. It's interesting to think about God as being these things. Of course, you know, can God be angry? Can God be hurt? These are the big theological questions. And many of us, I think, don't think of God that way. And yet the writers of the Torah talk about God or write about God as if God was a character in this story, someone who can be angry, someone who can be hurt, someone who reacts and lashes out in the ways that someone who felt betrayed might act. And so what comes next, I think, is as much about relationships as it is about God. Moses says, God, we need you. If we're going to continue, then I, as leader of the people, need to know that you're going to be there with me on our way through the wilderness. And God, who seems to have had some time to calm down at this point, says, you know what, Moses? Okay, I'll go with you. Carve two tablets of stone like the first ones. And I, God, will inscribe on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, that you shattered. So Moses is commanded to recarve the stone tablets that he smashed the first time out of anger. And God will put the words of the commandments, the words of the covenant, onto those tablets. But there's one major difference between the last tablets and the new tablets, and that is that the last ones were made entirely by God. This time around, Moses makes the tablets himself. And the commentator Rashi implies that that this is purposeful, that God wants for Moses, for the human side of this covenant, to have carved the tablets. Essentially, if you want to be part of this covenant, put some skin in the game. You carve the tablets, and I'll write the commandments on them, and then we can go forward. And Moses seems satisfied with this, except that Moses is looking for more assurance. This is in chapter 33. Moses says, Listen, God, you said to me, lead these people forward, but you have not made known to me whom you will send with me. In other words, Moses says, I don't really know you. I need more information. I need more closeness. I need to have better knowledge and better connection with you. Moses says, let me behold your presence. And God responds, okay, I'm going to do that. I will make all my goodness pass before me and you will know. But, you cannot see my face, for a human being may not see me and live. So God stations Moses in the cleft of a rock and says, I'm going to pass my hand by you. I'm going to cover you and you can see my back. Ufanai lo yirau, but my face must not be seen. This is an amazing passage. Moses, in this moment of brokenness, this moment of disconnection, begging for deeper connection, begging for greater knowledge and greater experience of God's presence. And God responds, yes, I will do that. But there's a caveat, right? God says, you can see my back, but you can't see my face. What does that mean? I mean, 
does God have a face? Are we talking about a God who has a form and likeness? This is the the same God who in Judaism is understood to have no form and no likeness. Of course, in ancient times, in surrounding cultures, gods were understood to have faces and backs and bodies, and the gods were considered very powerful and very dangerous. So in a sort of mythological sense, the idea that you can't see God's face and live tracks with ancient Near Eastern theology. To see the face of God would have been very dangerous. And so we can imagine that if this is an old enough story, that it has that kind of ancient Near Eastern resonance. And that's all good and well for mythology, but when we're reading Torah as Jews, what are we supposed to do with a passage that says that God has a face and a back? I mean, that's contrary to what Judaism teaches about God. And we're not the first people to have noticed this problem. The commentators also respond to the issue of what does it mean for God to have a back and not a face. The commentator Rashi says that when God shows Moses God's back, it means harehu kesher shel that God showed Moses the back or the knot of God's tefillin. If you've ever worn tefillin, then you know that on the back of your head tefillin, there's a little knot. It goes sort of at the back of your neck, and it sits at the base of the neck. So Rashi says that's what Moses saw, that piece of God's tefillin. And that's interesting because, of course, tefillin are a sign of our connection with God. Tefillin are an expression of the passage in the Shema that says, Ukshartam le'otal yadecha, you should bind the commandments as a sign upon your hands and between your eyes. When we put on tefillin traditionally, it is in order to show our commitment to the ongoing relationship and the commandments and the behavioral expectations that are placed on us by being in covenant. So it's interesting to think about God also wearing tefillin, maybe metaphorically speaking, because that would be then an expression of God's commitment to that covenant. And that is probably exactly what Moses and the Israelites needed in that moment. There's a second explanation of this passage, and it comes from Maimonides. For those of you who are taking my Radical Jewish Views of God class, this is a little bit of a preview, because we'll look at this text more closely together next week in the first week of class. Now, Maimonides is a radical rationalist. He believes that the Torah can't possibly be describing God as having a face and a back, because that's not consistent with philosophy and with truth as he understands it. So therefore, the Torah must be speaking in some kind of allegory or metaphor. And here's what he says it means when the Torah says that you can see God's back, but not God's face. This comes from the Guide of the Perplex, which is Maimonides' philosophical treatise. He says that the Hebrew word panim, which means face, has more than one meaning. Sometimes it refers to a physical face, Sometimes, he says, it means the presence and existence of a person. So therefore, when the Torah says you cannot see God's face, it is a way of saying you cannot comprehend God's true existence or God's true essence. By the same token, the Hebrew word achor, which means back, also has multiple meanings. It can, Maimonides says, refer to an actual physical back on a person, or, he says, it can mean, quote, 
the idea of following a thing and of conforming with the principles of some other being, which is to say, that which comes about as a result of something. So that when it says that you can see my back, Maimonides says the Torah means, I'm quoting again here, you can perceive that which follows me and is the result of my will. So for Maimonides, this very anthropomorphic passage, you can see my back but not my face, actually implies a truth of the human ability to connect with God, which is that he says we cannot comprehend God's true essence. We cannot know what God really is or how God works in the world. But we can experience those things that come about as a result of God's will, which is to say the world and relationships and people and principles of morality and ethics, all of these things that exist in the world because of God, Maimonides says, those are the ways that we can experience God. So here you have two very different ways of reading a confusing passage. Rashi says that this idea of God's back is an expression of God's commitment to the covenant. And for the Rambam, Maimonides, it's an expression of the idea that we can experience God all around us in the world, in things and people and moments and experiences. Now, we all have different conceptions of God, different ways of thinking about what God is or isn't. But I like the idea that the Torah is trying to tell us to look around, to experience all the ways that we continue to be in relationship with the ineffable, and that we can experience the divine all around us. That's a helpful message for this troubling moment in Torah. And I think it's also a helpful message for all the moments of our lives. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I'll see you next week. Seven Minute Torah is a production of La Asok, Sacred Texts, Modern Meaning. If you enjoyed this program, please consider becoming a sponsor at patreon.com slash seven minute Torah. For more information about upcoming learning opportunities, go to laasoka.org, L-A-A-S-O-K.org. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. Thanks for listening.